0: Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be at work in us now. Please change us. Please use my words as I speak about this passage, as I speak about who you are and what you've done. Please use those words to to do your will, to amaze us once more so that we would delight in your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Are you a cynic? Are you cynical? Um, when I think of a cynic, cynic's someone who doesn't think anything's really worthwhile. Cynic doubts whether anything really is going to happen, anything that's promised is going to change. I think a cynic is slightly different from being a pessimist. Pessimist looks at a glass says, you know, glass half empty, optimist half full. Cynic looks at the glass and says, is it really a glass? You know, is it, is it a trick glass? You know, don't bother filling it. Just leave it alone. It's not going to make any difference anyway. I think we live in a, a cynical time. We live in a, a cynical age. Cynicism is kind of like the, the air that we breathe. Thursday was polling day for local elections, not going to ask if you voted, but if we follow the the, if our, the, the people here follow the, the pattern nationwide, well, you know, more than half of you didn't vote. Turnout for Haringey was just over 32%. In Barnet, it was a little bit higher, but, you know, that was just, it was still only about 39%. Can't imagine if any of you got um, election literature through your, um, through your doors that you were, like, waiting to read it. You know, you kind of open it up, going, oh, look at that, that's wonderful, that's really exciting. You know, we tend to, you know, raise the eyebrow. You raise the eyebrow at those big gestures or those big promises. Now, let me be absolutely clear, I'm not talking about party politics, really. I'm not talking about any political party I guess I'm speaking more about what's our internal reaction to that kind of thing. What's our internal reaction when someone is trying to sell us a big vision? So when I put it like that, I realize myself that, you know, I'm more cynical than I'd like to think I am. Maybe you think the same. Why is that? I think that cynicism is like a defense mechanism. We tend to think of cynicism as protecting us from being disappointed, protecting us from disappointment, particularly when trust has been lost. But actually, what's really going on with cynicism is um, is that trust is now being redirected being redirected. See, once upon a time, you might say, well, I trusted something or someone. Like I say, this doesn't have to be um, uh, a political thing. It could be you trusted once upon a time in an institution. Maybe you trusted in a person. I don't know. You could have trusted it in a particular brand of washing powder, and then it's let you down, and you think, no more, never again. And what happens, deep down, that trust which you had in something else or someone else, is now turned inwards. You're saying, "You know what? I just trust myself. I'm going to trust myself. Put that barrier up cynicism. Trust is a big thing in the book of Isaiah. It's a huge thing. Time and time again, Isaiah is saying, "What are you going to stand on? Who are you going to trust?" Um, we heard it last week in, in, in the reading. You know, It said, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. But it kind of makes us ask the question, well, stand on what? Faith in what or in whom? Chapter 8, which we also looked at, verse 17. Isaiah said, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust, in him. So how does this book of Isaiah help us deal with cynicism? Cynicism about institutions, cynicism about God. How does it help us when it feels like there is this lack of trust? Yes, in the book of Isaiah, you get these warnings. If you've been trying to follow through with the With the daily reading plan, it feels like you get these warnings about judgment, these pronouncements of woe. And it's about a warning, you know, about a failure, that the judgment comes when we fail to trust God. And those warnings about, you know, you've got to trust God or else are there. But it doesn't end there, because more than that, across the whole book, God reveals his plan. God reveals his glory. And through this prophet. Isaiah, God is saying, look, let me show you why trusting me is so much more fulfilling, so much more satisfying. God says through Isaiah that deep down what you've been looking for, you can only find in me. That hope that your your heart is so desperate for that reason why you want to look elsewhere, but then you end up turning back inside. That hope that you have is only found in me. God says, it's only a living hope in me that's powerful enough to drive out cynicism. That's what we find in Isaiah chapter 11. A message of that hope. Isaiah tells us about the hope that's found in a righteous king, in the reign of peace from this righteous king, and then how he will deliver and restore his people. And it is quite clearly a prophecy about Jesus. So let's think about the righteous king. That's how Isaiah starts off this chapter. And the first thing to note from those first few verses is that there are fragile beginnings here. It talks about a shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots, a, a branch will bear fruit. What does a stump imply? Stump indicates that's a tree, that there was a tree, and that tree's been cut down. That's all you're left with is the stump. It's kind of a picture saying that all is not lost, but all you have is, is a shoot. Yes, this is the, the stump of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. And so, in one sense, you've got mighty King David, Israel's greatest king, but from his family, from his line, there's, there's just a stump. And there's just a root from there. This is a fragile start. It's not the main um, message of this passage, but throughout the Bible, we see that Christianity is not about might and power and strength from a human perspective. Indeed, the church throughout history, the church has has been its strongest spiritually when it's been weak and battered and trampled on. That's when the church has grown and thrived. But what really marks out this shoot, what really marks out the, the, the branch here, is that the, is that the spirit of the Lord rests on him. Talks about wisdom and understanding. It's talking about the fact that this, this, this root here, or um, the shoot rather, it sees the heart of the issue, counsel and might tells us that this king will get the job done. It says knowledge and fear of the Lord means that what's being done is done for the right reason, with the right motivation. The picture being painted in these first three verses is of God's perfect king, someone who's leading, but not out of their own strength, but out of God's strength, that their judgment isn't simply based on what they can see and hear, physically limited, but it, it's a spiritual kind of leadership because it comes from God. There's justice, but it's perfect justice. It's perfect righteousness that's based on perfect knowledge. All are treated fairly. All are treated equally. The, the, the weak, the most vulnerable, have their defender. This king, this perfect king is incorruptible. And when you, hear, when you hear this, what do we think? Does the cynicism kick, kick in? Too good to be true? You're never going to find a leader like that. But if you're looking for a human leader, you'd be absolutely right. If you're looking for an individual today, a purely human leader, but this is about Jesus, and it's only about Jesus now, don't get me wrong, we should demand high expectations from our leaders, and not just political leaders, but leaders from, from our church, from within our community. Not, it's, not, it's not an excuse for that, but people will disappoint us. Isaiah is saying, don't look for something in other people that can only be found in Jesus Accept no substitutes. Let him lead you. And where is he leading us? Where is he taking us? The next section then describes his reign, his reign of peace. It describes his kingdom of peace. Look at verse six. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. You know, It kind of carries on with cows and bears together, lions eating straw like ox, You know, little kids playing near snakes, and you're thinking, well, what is this? <laughs> what is this kind of fantasy picture? It's a picture of harmony. It's a picture of life without fear. There are no predators. There's no prey. It's a picture of the kingdom that we get, the kingdom that we get with this perfect king ruling over with righteousness and justice. This is the outcome of that. And Isaiah, he's deliberately reaching back into Israel's past. He's using the language of creation, the language of Eden, of a state of, of peace, of wholeness before Adam and Eve sinned. Now, historically, some Christians have used, um, have, have read these words, and they've, they, they're expecting something literally like this to happen that this prophecy will, it will literally happen rather than a, a something symbolic. And my, my initial thought is that it feels more symbolic of Jesus' reign. But go far into the future. Go into the new creation. And, you know, could this happen in the new creation under God? Why not? Why not? And so you think, yes, Mark. You're talking about, you know, heaven on earth. You're talking about, pff, I don't know how long in the future. Does this mean anything for us today, relevant for us here today? Well, the values of this reign, this reign of peace and harmony within creation, they should be our values today. It feeds into the kinds of things that, that Jerry was talking about earlier, about our, our need to care for the natural environment our need to care and be good stewards for all that God has given around us. Verse 9, though, it helps keep us anchored, stops us from maybe drifting off. Look at verse 9. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah says, we need the knowledge of the Lord. The whole planet, the whole earth needs this knowledge for all people to be kind of saturated, filled with all that it means to know God. And this is knowing God. This is not knowing about God. You know, the accumulation of facts about God that we we, that just kind of fit into our head now this is about knowing this is about knowing a person having an experience of them of being in relationship with the Lord the Lord the God who makes and keeps promises to his children and maybe you spotted it something similar coming up earlier in the passage from verse 2 The knowledge of the Lord, which is kind of like that heart attitude, that disposition of the heart towards the Lord. That's what we see in the perfect king, in the righteous king. It's what we see in Jesus. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, a delight in the fear of the Lord. You see, this rule of peace and harmony can't be separated from the rule of Jesus a rule under his word. And what we see here is then is that Jesus' rule, his kingdom is good. It's good news. It's where people flourish. It's where society flourishes. When we live according to the way God wants us to live and when it becomes our delight to live like that. Maybe that's something that we need to pray for for our own lives. To pray and to say, To ask Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to delight in you in the way that I see Isaiah delighting here, to, to know you more deeply, to not be satisfied with knowing facts about you. I want to know that harmony and that peace of living under your rule and enjoying it and knowing that's where I thrive is that your prayer do you want to pray that so we've got this righteous king we've got a description of his rule and his harmony but how is that achieved how does that come about the last section then of this chapter i suppose it's the second half really from verse 10 onwards it's about the deliverance and the restoration of the king's people let me read that section from verse 10 In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. Two key words there, rally and reclaim. See, people are coming to this king. They are coming to Jesus. Jesus is being raised like a banner. Maybe think of it like like a flag, like a signal that attracts people. People come to him, they rally to him. Why? Because there's something about Jesus, there's something about him that's magnetic, magnetic. Compelling, attractive. People turn to him, they want to know him. As I said it earlier, we saw in the passage that Jesus should be, he should be compelling to us, to our hearts, because he's the perfect leader in his ruling, in his justice, in his compassion, in his care for all, for the powerful, for the vulnerable. We see it in the Gospels that people They couldn't help but want to spend time with Jesus. And today, I believe that when people really come to know Jesus, they're not disappointed. Now, hear me out on this. When I say that they're not disappointed, it doesn't mean that, you know, everything's like a Disney fairy tale. You know, bright blue skies, birds singing every morning. Life's not like that. Life's not like that. But knowing Jesus, knowing who he is, having his presence, having his spirit in your life, knows that when you are in the dark days, when you are are in sadness, in hardship for yourself with other people, you know that you're not alone. You'll know that Jesus is with you and his presence with you, in you, guiding you, helping you. That's what makes the difference. So people rally to him, they are attracted, they come to him, but they can only rally to him because he reclaims them. Earlier it was the language of Genesis, language of creation, but here it's the language of Exodus, the language of deliverance for God's people. It says he gathers the exiles of Israel, he assembles the scattered people of Judah Verse 15, the Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. It's meant to make us think of Moses leading the Israelites across the Red Sea. Now, for for the Jewish people... For Isaiah's people, this this act of deliverance that you have here in the Exodus, that was the single most important, significant act of God. The single most, the clearest demonstration of his power as he rescues, as he delivers his people. But amazingly here, Isaiah extends that further. He says, that this king, this root, the Lord Jesus, is a banner for the peoples, for the nations. It's what Chris led the service with from that psalm, for the nations to come together. Look around us. Here in this building, we are the evidence of that. We are the evidence of the nations coming together under Jesus. You see, here in London, we should expect the church to be multi-ethnic. We should expect the church to be multicultural because Christ is the banner for all. But before we pat ourselves on the back, get too comfortable, it doesn't end with us. We need to keep lifting Jesus higher. There's an old song I used to sing in, um, in church. Lift Jesus higher. Lift Jesus higher. Lift him up for the world to see. The world needs to see Jesus. The nations, the nations which have come to London, need to hear about his rule. The world needs to hear that his rule is good. People need to hear that. We in the church, we need to be reminded of that. But a lot of people, they actually need to hear that for the first time. They need to hear it by seeing it evident in our lives. If you call yourself a, a Christian, if you're saying that you're loving God and you want to follow him, your life, our, my life should be a demonstration of that, of, of where my trust is, that the things that I'm cynical about are my own ability to get anything done. The world should see that I trust Jesus, that I trust his word. And the world needs to hear that Jesus will return, that he will judge the world because he is just and righteous and he can't ignore the wrong. He can't ignore sin. You could say, it brings me back to that song I used to sing, lift Jesus higher, lift him up for the world to see because the next line of that song went, he said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men. I will draw all people to me. And that was from John chapter 12. And it says there that Jesus said those words to show the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus' death on the cross, a sacrificial death for our sins, a death where he was humiliated. And as I close then, just to to say then that Jesus, yes, physically, he was lifted up. But he was abased. He was humiliated. He was brought low. Jesus was brought low so that we could be brought in. Gathered to him. Reclaimed for him so that we could rally to him. And then be filled with his spirit filled with knowledge of him and delight in obeying him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would melt our hearts of, of cynicism towards you, cynicism about the Lord Jesus, about who he is and what he has done for us. Holy Spirit, please be at work in our hearts so that we might see the glory of Jesus afresh, would be alive to us. Help us, Lord, to trust you, Jesus, to help us to love you deeply, to know harmony even through the valleys and the chaos of this life. Help us to live under your word and to delight in that place. Pray that we would lift you up in the way that we live our lives and in the words that we use to those who don't yet know you. We ask in your precious name. Amen.